As we open up the word now together, let me pray for us once more. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Sometimes we say this, hey kids, we've got a babysitter tonight, but we picked up this special dessert for you. You can have it with the sitter after we leave. We like that trick. And we like it most when it produces this response. Uh, mommy, daddy, can you please leave so that we can have dessert? <laughs> now, <clears throat> if we weren't so relieved when we got that response, if we wanted to be critical of our children in that moment, we might explain to them that it's rude to communicate to people that you can't wait to get rid of them so that you can get to what's really enjoyable. <laughs> As we get older, we... Learn that being polite involves expressing love for people themselves, not just for the things that people can give us. But in our hearts, there's a little bit of that kid that lives on, isn't there? What I mean is we do a little bit sometimes want what we can get from people more than we want relationship with people. True? I mean, like, if we can get what we want from people without the inconvenience of real relationship with them, with all the mess that that comes with, all the better. And that's what underlies the popularity of a great number of things in our lives, from grocery store self-checkout lanes to social media to pornography, a whole range of things underneath which is, I want what I can get from you more than I want relationship with you. It's worth reflecting on whether that's also the case in our relationship with God. Here's what I mean. What if we could get all of God's blessings without having a relationship with him? What if he was like a rich absentee father who sent expensive gifts every month, but we never spoke? Would we consider that a satisfactory arrangement? Today's scripture raises that question. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 15? Luke 15, this is week three of our summer sermon series on Jesus' parables. If you were at sports camp this past week and are visiting us this morning, welcome. The parables that we're looking at this summer, these are, these are stories which employ comparison, relating this thing over here that we do understand to this thing over here that we might not understand yet. And so Jesus explained to his followers that by teaching this way, using parables, he intended to achieve the dual function of, on one hand, unlocking the secrets of God's kingdom of how it operates, and on the other hand, hardening some people against him, such that their unwillingness to hear him would become an inability to hear him. So two weeks ago, we looked at a parable that talked about a seed that fell on four different kinds of soil. Last week, we talked about a parable about a generous landowner who paid some of his vineyard workers way more than they deserved. Today, we look at one of Jesus' longest and most famous parables. Entire books have been written on this parable that still only mine a couple layers down into the absolute gold that's jam-packed in these words. So the first verses of chapter 15 of Luke's gospel tell us who's listening to Jesus tell this parable. And knowing the audience on this one is critically important for understanding it, right? So there's two groups present. There's tax collectors and sinners on the one side who go out and live however they want. And on the other side, Pharisees and scribes who take a ton of pride in how well they follow God's law, right? These two groups live very different lifestyles. 
uh, and they don't really care for each other. So Jesus tells three back-to-back parables in Luke 15. One about lost sheep, one about a lost coin, and now he's going to tell them a third parable that involves a lost son. So we're looking today at verses 11 to 32, where Jesus weaves together one of the most skillful stories ever told. And part of what makes it so skillful is that it addresses both of the groups that are listening to him. On one hand, the tax collectors and sinners, and on the other hand, the Pharisees and scribes. It unfolds masterfully in nine parts. We'll move fast, but we'll follow along in order. So first, the setup. If you have some sort of religious background, you might be familiar with this parable by its common name, the parable of the prodigal son. But Jesus explicitly flags for us in the first verse of the parable that this isn't a parable about one son. It's a parable about two sons. He said, a man had two sons. That's how he starts off. It's only once we compare and contrast the two sons in the parable that we get the fullness of the secret Jesus is revealing about the kingdom here. Right? So let's get right into it. The younger son rebels in verses 12 to 16. Two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. It's overwhelmingly likely that none of Jesus' hearers this day would have ever heard of something like this happening. We don't have a single record of it in any ancient text. We do have rare examples of an inheritance being passed down before the father's death, but always at the father's initiative, right? never at the request of the son. The level of disrespect here is, is staggering, right? So much so that in this cultural context, Jesus' hearers wouldn't have been surprised if this father responded by throwing his son out of the house and permanently disowning him from the family. Because whatever the culture, this is an egregious offense by this younger son. Think about what he's saying in essence. He's essentially saying, Dad, uh, won't you die already? I'm tired of waiting to inherit your stuff. True? Surely, this dad will hear this and say, Get out of here with that, right? Let's see the back half of verse 12. So he distributed the assets to them. Wait, what? The the father lets his son get away with this? Grants his request? There's no way. But there it is. And to be precise, the father distributes the assets to them, meaning that the younger son would have gotten a third of the estate and the older son would have gotten two-thirds because by law, firstborns got double what the other siblings got, right? So it's officially now been divvied up, two-thirds and one-third. Even if the father has legal right to continue exercising some level of management as long as he lives, the question is, uh, what is the younger son so eager to do with his third of the estate? Let's continue. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. In order to gather all he has, so to speak, what effectively had to happen here is that the younger son must have immediately sold off his third of the estate and converted it to cash so he could take it with him and spend it, right? And, but think about what that means for his family in this context. In a cultural context in which your family land was everything, now the father and his whole family line have one-third less land than they had before. Father's status has been diminished. His standing in the community, the family's future has taken a hit. Also, this younger son could live it up for a while. Some of y'all freaked out when your teenage kids told you they were going to take a gap year. Imagine if your son did this. 
That was a joke. I wasn't trying to be mean. <clears throat> now, again, think about this with me, right? So if the younger son has sold off and spent his third of the estate, that means 100% of what remains of the estate now effectively belongs to who? The older son. Yeah. He's going to inherit all of what's left now that at the father's death. So what happens next. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When this story is read, I read a study on this. When a story, this story is read to people in other parts of the world and listeners are asked to summarize what they remember from what they just heard. Their summaries always include the part about the famine. Uh, meanwhile, here in America, some of us have read this parable a million times. Would you remember that there was a famine? I always forget that part of the story. I would not have recited that as part of the story, but that's part of the story, right? During times when the belt gets tightened for everyone, you find out who your true friends are. And this younger son realizes he's got nobody, no real friends, just people who used him for his money and then vanished when the money were dried up. So to stay alive, this younger son attaches himself to a citizen of the country who quite possibly gave him this menial, degrading job as a way of running him off, right? He's a Jewish man, right? So for a Jewish man to feed pigs is the lowest of the low that life could get. He's starving. It's bad, right? I wonder if anyone here relates so far with any aspects of this younger son's story. Like maybe you've tasted that desire to get out there and discover yourself, the impulse to live it up. Or maybe you've experienced the disappointment of finding out your friends weren't real friends. Maybe the riches to rags nature of this story arc reminds you of a season that you suffered through at some point. But at rock bottom, the younger son starts to turn. He starts to turn. Let's look at it in verses 17 to first part of verse 20. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. Is this a full turn? Maybe. Maybe not. He's at least starting to turn. He comes to his senses, which at least means that he's realized he's done something dumb. So, as many of us have done at some point or another, he begins to rehearse his speech. Throw up a hand if this has ever been you. Have you ever rehearsed an apology before giving it? Yeah. As far as apologies go, the one he prepares has some pretty sincere elements, right? No excuses. No minimizing. I've sinned against heaven. That's against God. And in your sight, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's taking ownership. Is it sincere? Hard to tell, right? The Egyptian pharaoh used very similar words in his Exodus 10 apology that turned out to be insincere, so we have to wait and see. But there's another element to this prepared apology that's worth reflection. What are the implications of his preparing to say, make me like one of your hired workers? Make me like one of your hired workers. 
For background, hired workers were not the household servants. They were lower than them. Hired workers were below the servants. They didn't live on the property. They lived in the village. Hired workers came onto the property to work for an hourly or daily rate. Right? In other words, what is this younger son preparing to ask his father for? Not to be taken back as a member of the household. Not, certainly not to be taken back as a son. He's asking to earn his way back. Make me like one of your hired workers. He wants to pay for his crime. Let let me work off my debts, Dad. I'll make it up to you. That's the essence of his request. What do you think about that? If you're an average, hardworking, responsible North Shore resident, you might be like, good, that's the right approach, right? Don't be expecting any free handouts. You dig yourself a hole, you better be ready to find your way out of it. Maybe you even have a story of a time you did that, right? You made a mistake, but then you white-knuckled your way into making up for it. What about with God? Ever made a pledge like this to him? I'll work it off. Make me one of your hired workers. December 31st, and you're like, God, I blew it this year, but you just watch. You've never seen anybody be as Christian as I'm about to be this next year. I'm going to sign up to serve at church. They need toilets. I'm going to make it up to you. Many of us have probably come to God in that way at some point or another. The question I'm asking is, is God pleased by that? Is a pledge to make restitution a sign that someone has really turned from their sin to God? I'm going to argue here that there is something deficient still in this rehearsed speech that is about to get adjusted. So let's see, the younger son fully turns, I'm saying, in verses 20 and 21. You'll notice the father's initiative here. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. A few quick observations. One, for the father to have seen him a long way off, there's an implication that he's been looking for him. He loves his son so much that he's been waiting and hoping that one day his silhouette would appear out there on the horizon. And when his son does come into view, the father, he gets his own speech ready. You ungrateful, you've got a lot of nerve showing your face. No, he starts with a silent treatment. Let's see if my son's really sorry. That's not right either, right? Father's heart's filled with compassion. despite the fact that his son has caused him incalculable harm. And so he does the unthinkable in this cultural context. He runs. Kids run. Slaves are ordered to run. Women might occasionally run. But a Middle Eastern patriarch who have to hike up his skirts to run, no way you'd do that and show your legs. But that's the thing. Social norms and dignity are the last thing on this father's mind right now. All he can think about is how excited he is to see his son again. So he throws his arms around his son's neck. Before his son can bend down to kiss his father's feet, maybe his father prevents any possibility of that by giving kisses of his own. It's repeated kissing based on the language used. And by the way, there's a communal element here that I never appreciated before studying it this time around. So think about this. In, in such a communal cultural context as the one they're in, the residents of the village would have shared in the fury at this younger son when he had left, right? And and so the sight of him coming back to town would have gotten everybody out of their homes to give him the old, what are you showing up here for? You were too good for us, too good for your dad, and you're not welcome back here, right? 
That's what would have been expected. You have to think word would spread quickly. As soon as one person sees that kid coming back into town, everybody's coming out of their homes, quickly gathering to see the spectacle and be part of the jeering, maybe even, as he works his way back to, to the house, right? And that means that by running out to meet his son, the father may also be protecting him from the villagers that might have otherwise subjected him to significant disdain on the last leg of his walk home. Anyways, it's, it's now time for the son to recite his rehearsed speech. So let's see how the delivery goes. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But you'll notice if you're reading along in your own Bible, that's it. That's where the speech ends. Which means... What's missing from what he rehearsed? Which part? About being a hard worker, a hired worker, making it up to him, right? He never does get around to proposing that. And in my first draft of this sermon, my punchline there is going to be, hey, well, the father interrupts him to invite him back as a son before he can suggest the whole hired worker thing, right? But then reflecting on it more, I realized, well, there's nothing stopping the son from circling back around and making the hired worker suggestion later, right? Say like in the middle of verse 24, if you're looking at it. He could have done it there, right? He could have said, wait, wait, Dad, this is so nice to offer me coming back in the family, but listen, it's important that I earn this back. I blew it, I'm gonna make it right. The son doesn't ever say that. Why? I think it's gotta be because, contrary to his initial plans, He has accepted the Father's grace. And speaking from experience now, that can be one of the hardest parts of repentance. No? To accept grace, the part where we give up on trying to pull off some sort of penance that would re-earn our Heavenly Father's acceptance. The truth is, our plans of penance, our plans to make it up to God, detract from the free gift that He wants to give us. Here's what I'm saying. The son's rough draft planned speech was actually deficient because it was based on a lingering belief in his heart that his sin could be worked off. And here's why that's so problematic. As long as that son was still holding on to that desire to make restitution, he was still making the same fundamental mistake he had been making at the beginning, namely, rejecting his relational status as son. That's what his father has wanted all along have a relationship with his son, but his son has never accepted that until now. Back in verse 12, the son effectively said, having your wealth is preferable to being your son. Then in verse 19, when preparing to apologize, he's still planning to say, being your servant is preferable to being your son. See? His initial apology plan would have kept his father at a relational distance while trying to earn forgiveness instead of opening himself up to receiving a free and far superior gift of relational restoration to sonship. That's why I'm suggesting that only now, here in verse 21, now that the hired hand idea has been abandoned, only now has the younger son fully turned. He hasn't just acknowledged his sin, though he has. He hasn't just acknowledged the cost of his sin, though he's done that too. What he's done now is that he's stopped trying to pay for his sin and thrown himself upon his father for mercy. I wonder if there's anybody here who needs to do that this morning. I wonder if there's anybody here this morning who came here thinking that you had fully repented, but 
your repentance, in hindsight, has really just amounted to giving your heavenly father a stiff arm, keeping him at arm's length while you tell him, hey, watch me, I got this. I'm going to work so hard for you that you won't, I won't need your grace. You'll owe me forgiveness after my hard work. That's not what he wants. He wants to give you the free gift, his grace. He wants to shower it on you. He wants to lavish his love, his kisses on you. What if you just allowed him to throw his arms around your neck this morning and shower you with kisses and take you back as a son or daughter? But that can be hard to do. Accepting that free gift requires way more humility and heart transformation than it would if we just made a pledge to pay God back. I can make a pledge without my heart changing. Yet, it's not full repentance until we do just that and accept his grace and stop trying to earn it back. Check out this feast. Verses 22 to 24. The father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The father entertains no suggestion or consideration of his son being restored as anything other than as a full son. The best robe, that would have been the father's robe. Only the son gets that. The family ring, hired workers don't get those. As the household staff would have put the sandals on the son's feet at the father's request, they would be symbolically affirming that they are his servants again now too. And the fattened calf, sure... Like, that, that's significant because it's the finest food the father could have chosen, but that's not all. Think about this. In an era before refrigerators, meat went bad quickly. So you'd only kill the fattened calf if you're going to feed a lot of people. Scholars think it wouldn't make sense unless you expected around 100. That means this father, he's inviting the whole village to this party. They would have sent word to all the surrounding farms and homes, hey, when you get done with your day's work, follow the sound of the music. We're killing a fattened calf here, and there'll be food for everybody. In other words, you see what the Father's doing? This isn't just a private restoration. He's making sure his son is restored in the eyes of the servants who put the sandals on his feet and in the eyes of the whole community who are going to come out to this party and celebrate him. Why all this effort? The father says why. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. As far as father was concerned, this son had been distant enough from him to have been dead, utterly lost, but now he's alive. He's been found. So, that's enough that we could spend hours reflecting on what we just read. Right? And that's the story many of us grew up learning in church as kids, the story of the prodigal son. But don't forget, this is a parable about a man who had two sons. That's how Jesus kicked it off. So what's the older son going to think about all this? Let's see, verses 25 to 28, the older son rebels. And I say rebels intentionally to match what we said about the younger brother earlier. Uh, But the older brother's rebellion is a very different kind of rebellion. He doesn't shame his father by shirking his duties and leaving the property. He shames his father while fulfilling his duties on the property. Let's look at it. And the older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. 
Imagine you're the older brother. Your father is holding this feast. He has invited the whole village. He's slaughtered the fattened calf. Musicians are playing. Everybody's dancing. Surely the guests from the village are eager to talk to you about it, to get a feel for your take on all these developments. So for you to make a scene by staying outside the feast sulking, which forces your dad to come out of the house and leave the party to come out and talk to you, in this culture especially, that would have been so incredibly disrespectful. Like, pull it together is what the hearers of this story would have been saying. Like, put on a happy face in honor of your dad. Say hi to the neighbors. Then privately take him aside maybe after the party and express your concerns. But you're going to stay out in the yard pouting? See why this is such an egregious offense? But we find out it's not just the younger son who is loved by the father. It's not just the younger son the father wants to forgive. Here comes the father pleading. Verse 28, his father came out and pleaded with him. Just like before, the father humbles himself to go out and talk with his son. This time it's his older son. And it's not just a lecture or a scolding. He pleads with him. He sincerely wants his two sons to be part of this party. He wants unbroken relationship with both of them. Now remember, <clears throat> when the younger son received this lavish, unexpected grace from his father, coming out from the house to meet him and, 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 and tenderly minister to him, that grace transformed his heart. He realized what he'd really been missing, and he accepted his father's invitation to relate to him as a son. So surely it'll be the same for this older brother, right? When father comes out from the house and graciously pleads with him instead of bringing down the hammer on him, surely this will transform his heart such that he'll join the party too and live happily ever after with the father. No. He doubles down. He replied to his father, look, notice, not father, not sir, titles have been so important in this parable. It's been specifically noted every time, the addressee. But this thing, look, I've been slaving Note, in his heart, he's been relating to his father as a slave, not as a son. For years, many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Never? Nothing to take ownership of? Like maybe we just humiliated him in front of the whole village? Yet, you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Well. This son of yours, he's so resentful, he can't even bear to speak of him as his own brother. He adds in the part about prostitutes, even though we weren't actually told anything about prostitutes as part of the actual story. Maybe to imply to his father that according to Torah, this younger brother deserves the death penalty. And here's the kicker. Uh, you never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. In that phrase, we find out definitively what the older brother's really been wanting. That the older brother and the younger brother have been fundamentally the same as each other all along. In the case of the younger son, it had been obvious from the beginning that he hadn't wanted a father-son relationship. Right From the father's perspective, it was, oh, you've been counting down the days until I die so that you could get my stuff. Okay? But now father finds out the older brother has been in the same camp. Like, oh, you've been counting down the days till I die, so you can do what you really want to do, which is not be with me, but to throw a party with your friends and feed them one of my goats. See it? At their core, neither son 
has desired a father-son relationship with their dad. They've both been keeping him at a distance, one by leaving with dad's stuff, the other by resentfully slaving away to one day earn dad's stuff. We'd understand at this point if the father decided to just be done with this older son. But unbelievably, in the final verses of this story, the father pleads once more. Verses 31 and 32. Son, he said to him, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Can't you sense the tenderness? Son, you're, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. And the father means that quite literally, right? Like, how could I possibly give you any more? The whole estate at this point is going to you. 100% of what's mine in this world will go to you. I don't have anything left to give you that I haven't already assigned to you. And now you want me dead too? We had to celebrate and rejoice. How could we not? A member of our family. Yes, my son, but also your brother, remember? He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So we expect that surely now we're going to find out right down here what happens to this older brother. We've now found out that he's dead too, but maybe the story will end with him finding new life just like his younger brother did. But no. Jesus just ends the story there. We don't know what happens to the older brother. It's left open-ended. And we remember, when we remember who Jesus is telling this story to, we realize how genius this ending is. Remember the two groups Luke tells us were present at the beginning of chapter 15? You have the tax collectors and sinners, and you have the Pharisees and scribes. At this point, many of those listening had to have picked up on what Jesus has been implying in this parable. The feast would have been understood by Jesus' hearers as the feast. Jews were anticipating the feast. Jesus' fathers were, knew that he talked often about this feast. The feast that's coming at the end of the age, the one that we, we would call heaven, right? That metaphor was common in Judaism. Jesus used it frequently. In, in advance of that coming feast, tax collectors and sinners have been improbably coming to Jesus. That was the precipitating event that led to this parable, right? These were those among those represented by the younger son in the parable. They had lived wild lives. They're disregarding God's law, but now they've turned from their sin and come to the Father. Meanwhile, these Pharisees, they've been standing off to the side, arms crossed like the older son, grumpily criticizing Jesus for embracing these immoral people over here. We've been the law keepers. We've been following God's commands to the letter. But Jesus has effectively said to them here in this parable, all your rule following doesn't mean that you're in the feast. Younger sons who live immorally, they need to come home to the Father if they want to be part of that heavenly feast. There's no salvation without repentance. But older sons who have lived very morally need to come home to the Father if they want to be part of the heavenly feast. By default, none of us come to the Father as we should on his own terms, embracing our status as sons. We all, by default, could take or leave relationship with him. We want his stuff. Some of us go about getting his stuff by being really bad, others by being really good. But moralists or hedonists, we're all after the same thing, which means we're all in danger of missing out on this heavenly feast unless we turn from our sin, whatever version of sin we fall into. Turn from our sin and come to him as children. 
So our big idea today is this. Whether we're more like the younger brother or more like the older brother, let's accept our father's invitation to his great feast. You may identify more with the younger brother. That might be more your story. You might identify more with that older brother. That might feel more like your story. Either way, let's accept our father's invitation to his great feast. The Old Testament had hinted at this secret for centuries that some religiously observant people will nevertheless find themselves on the outside of the kingdom looking in. On the flip side, some whom the world would consider the furthest from the kingdom will find themselves partaking in the great feast. Jesus takes that secret and unlocks it for us in plain sight through this parable. And in it we see that all of us have effectively been like the kid who says, Dad, can you leave already so I can have dessert? Father, will you die already so I can get your inheritance? If you just keel over, I could eat a goat with my friends. Our Heavenly Father has wanted relationship with us. We've just wanted his stuff, his benefits, what he can give us. And it's only by accepting the invitation to relationship with him that we'll be included in that forever kingdom. But there's one more major question we haven't addressed. Uh, Almost every major commentator has tried to answer it, but it's amazing how many of them have come up empty over the years. I didn't see this piece of it until I heard Tim Keller teach this parable, and you've heard a lot of his insights coming through this morning. Probably some of you recognize that. But here's a question that stumps so many commentators. Where does Jesus want us to see him in this parable? Who's Jesus in the parable? Is he like the father who goes out to both sons and lavishes grace? But then Jesus is so often talking about his heavenly father, it would be strange for him to put himself in that spot. But as Tim Keller and surely others before him have pointed out, no, no, Jesus wants us to see him in this story as the true older brother. The true older brother. And it's not far-fetched. Doesn't the New Testament call him the firstborn among many brothers? And check this out. The parable follows directly on the heels of two other parables, if you look back in the early verses of Luke 15, about a lost sheep and a lost coin. In both those parables, there's a search for what's lost. The shepherd goes looking for the sheep. The coin owner goes looking for the lost coin. So it's jarring then in the story of the lost son that nobody goes looking for the lost son. But as some commentators have noted, Jesus' hearers would have known whose job that should have been. It should have been the job of the eldest son. Everyone would have assumed in this cultural context that it was the older brother's job to go out and track down his younger brother to bring him home. It was his responsibility as the primary heir to keep the family together, to honor their father by making things right. Yet, the older brother in the story doesn't go out to pursue his younger brother. Seemingly, because to do so would have been costly for him. Right? Remember, once the younger brother sells off his portion and leaves, all that's left effectively belongs to the older brother now, right? He'll be in full control over all of it upon the father's death. The robe will be his. The ring will be his. The goats and calves will be his. All of it, right? So any robe or any ring or any calf that goes to the younger brother is in some sense at the expense of the older brother. He would have to take the hit, in other words, if the family was going to be restored and if the father's wishes were going to be honored by this younger brother being brought back in and the family being made complete. But years later, Jesus' friends would have been able to see where he fits in this parable. Probably not right when he told it. 
But later, after his death and resurrection, the light bulb went on for some of them, saying, oh, oh, he's the true elder brother in that story he told us. He fulfills the vocation that that older brother in the story was supposed to fulfill. Jesus was stripped of his seamless robe. He laid down his right to exercise power. He allowed himself to be slaughtered like a fattened calf in order that we, his younger brothers, could feast. And it's because he went out and found us that we get to experience our father throwing our arms, his arms around our necks, showering us with kisses, saying, welcome home, welcome to the feast. A feast that was free for us but came at the greatest of cost to our older brother Jesus. If you've never come into the feast, either because of your quest for self-discovery or because of your impeccable morality, come on home this Father's Day. God has been watching down the road for you. You see him running your way? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're that sort of father. Our fathers have been imperfect. We as fathers have been imperfect. But there you are, watching every day for us after we reject you and humiliate you and shame you, effectively steal from you. You're just watching. And the first sign of us turning back You come running to us. Throw your arms around us. Shower us with your kisses. Bring us back home as sons and daughters. We thank you that that's your heart. And we thank you for our older brother Jesus, who didn't wait for us to make the first step back home, but who went running out to us when we weren't interested in returning home, when we were still in our sin. And he did so at greatest cost himself by dying in our place so that we could inherit as sons and daughters. Help us to be a people who treasure that, who don't try to earn it back, but who just bask in our sonship. And as you invite others, other younger brothers, into, back into the family, help us not to be folding our arms resentfully outside the feast, watching, uh, but help us to be joyfully going out and welcoming them into the feast. In Jesus' name, amen.